Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. We are continuing today in a series of messages that we began a few weeks ago called Divine Interruptions. And so you say, well, I haven't been here, Pastor Alex. What have you been talking about? No worries. I'm going to catch you up right here, right now. So Divine Interruptions, here's what we've been talking about. The fact that God loves you and he loves me enough to interrupt our lives. And some of you are like, that doesn't sound like a very loving thing to do. I don't like when I get interrupted. But here's the truth of the matter is that God does love us when he interrupts us. And it might just be the most loving thing that God could ever do. See, you and I have this propensity. We have this tendency that kind of left to our own, we tend to focus all of our energy and our attention on us. And I start to think about me and what makes me happy and what's going to make my life more comfortable. And I think about my achievements and my work and my little sphere and my little world. And I can just begin to become self-centered. I can become very self-absorbed and it becomes all about me. And when it becomes all about me, that means that I'm not necessarily thinking about who God is. I'm not considering the creator of the universe and the fact that he may have a plan or a purpose for my life. I'm not considering him. I've just got to focus on me. And, and even this idea that I'm focused on me doesn't actually fare very well for those who are in my life. Because now I'm not thinking about others. I'm just thinking about me. And if I think about others, it's how they can serve me and my purposes. And the good news is that God loves us enough to not let us go through life self-centered. Because it never works out very well. See, when we become self-centered, we become sort of God in our own life. We call the shots. We have the final say. And I don't know if you've come to realize this or not. If you've tried to be God in your life, it doesn't work out very well. You, you eventually find out that you don't have like all power. You don't have all knowledge and you don't have all strength. So eventually life fails. Your attempts to make success, uh, I fell short and I can't do it. And it's often in those moments that God uses that to be an interruption for us to turn and fix our eyes on him. And so I believe that God loves us enough to interrupt us, to stop us from looking inward and to help us to reallocate our attention from self back to God. And if God cares about us, which I believe that he does, he doesn't want us to go through life mysteriously, like, what's my plan? What's, what am I supposed to do, God? How do I live this life? He's actually shared with us how we're to live life. And he shared that through revealing himself to us. God's self-revelation to mankind is what we find in the pages of Scripture, this compilation of 66 ancient manuscripts that we believe that God somehow or another breathed upon, and it speaks to us that we know who God is, we know who we are, and we know what we're supposed to do. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been establishing this idea that God loves us enough to interrupt us when our life is not going in a good direction. When it's going all about us, it's not good for us or the people around us. God loves us enough to interrupt us. 
Now, this sometimes causes people to wonder some theological things. Like, does that mean that God makes bad things happen in people's lives? Is God the one to blame for the cancer that my family had to endure? Is God to blame for the loss of my loved one? Is God to blame for why I lost my job? Is God to blame for all of these things? And while I do believe that there is this concept of the sovereignty of God, that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, he doesn't have to ask permission. He's sovereign. He's God. He can move and do what he wants. Inside of this concept of his sovereignty, he has chosen to give you and I something called a free will, that we get to make some choices. And the choices we make determine the future that we live. In other words, the choices I make today determine the stories I'm going to live tomorrow because God has allocated in his sovereignty the ability for me to make decisions. And so when God does interrupt, whether he initiated it or he just took a natural event that would occur in your life and brought meaning to it, like, can I blame God for that car accident? Well, no, you probably shouldn't have got drunk first, got in the car, and then driven it. You don't get to blame all of that on God. That's the consequence of your actions, right? You chose to overindulge. You chose to drive the vehicle. You wrecked the vehicle. You don't get to blame God for that. But God loves you enough that he'll take this horrible thing that's the natural cause and effect of your choices, and he'll bring meaning to it to turn your eyes to him. Isn't that good news? That means that whatever you're going through, no matter how bad it is, no matter who you wanted to originate it, if it was God or if it was just you, God can use it to wake you up, to take your attention off of yourself and put it back on him. That's such good news. But today we're changing the story. We're turning the page. We're going into week three of this. And instead of saying, how does God get our attention? Because there's a lot of ways he can do that. He'll get as loud as he needs to get our attention. God... Instead of asking, how does God get our attention? Here's the question today. How do we get God's attention? How do we get God's attention? Now, some of you who grew up in church are like, well, God sees everything and knows everything. He already knows. I have his attention, Pastor Alex. But if you've ever been through a hard situation, if you've ever been in a circumstance in which you've prayed about something, and then you prayed again, and then you prayed again, and then you prayed again, and, and you felt like your prayers kind of stopped at the ceiling, that they weren't getting through to God. You never saw God show up on your behalf. You were like, God, where are you? God, I need you. I want you here. God, I, I would, I'm inviting a divine interruption in my life. I want you to show up, but where are you? Have you ever been there? And you felt like, how do I get God's attention? Does God really care about me? Does he really care about the pain that I'm going through? Does he really care about this? Or is he busy dealing with more important things? How do we get God's attention? Well, I think there's two things that we have to start with if we want God's attention. Number one is that we need to realize that we need God. Just the opposite is also true. God doesn't necessarily need you. He is completely satisfied in who he is. He's not incomplete without you. He's not like a desperate boyfriend that needs you to complete him. He's just fine, okay? He's just fine. But we need him. There was a guy by the name of Pascal years ago who had said that God has created us with a God-shaped vacuum inside of us, that there's this inner need that we have 
that can only be filled with God, that we are wired to be dependent upon him. The problem is, is that we go through life and we try to fill that void with everything that we can do in our own power. We try relationships, we try money, we try accomplishment, we try to fill this with whatever we think will fill the void. And when the things that we try don't work, we try, well, maybe, maybe alcohol will cause me to be able to forget that I'm insufficient and I can't do it all. Maybe if I tried that drug, that would cause me to feel a different way. But here's the truth. We have this God-shaped void that only God can fill, and we need God. And so if we want to get God's attention, we first have to come to the place of recognizing that God's not here to serve me and help me just be the king and God of my own life. No, no, no. I need God to be God because I'm not God. The first starting point is to recognize we need God because I'm not him. And then second to that, we have to realize in the Bible that God loves to respond to humanity's faith and humility. Faith and humility. You want to see God move in your world? It starts when you have faith, when you believe that he is who he said he is, and you have humility. You're not trying to get him to do things your way. Uh, A lot of times I I meet uh, teenagers, and they're always trying to strike deals with God. God, if I do this, then will you help her go to the prom with me? And it's like this bargaining, it's this bartering. God, if I do this, then will you give me what I want? Like, I'll give a little bit, you give a little bit. Like, let's be in partnership, God. And God's like, I don't, I don't need to bargain with you. I'm God. I have everything that I need. I would love for you to choose me and to choose to get in step with me because it's the best thing for you, but I don't need you. And so when we approach God in humility, recognizing that I don't need, um, that, that I truly need him, Right? There's this verse, James, that says that uh, God resists the proud, but he gives grace, this unmerited favor to the humble. When we are humble and can approach God, believing that he is who he says he is, and we can willingly submit our lives to him, that is when God begins to respond. You say, well, this concept of faith, what is that? Is it just believing what I can't see? Is it just belief? I would say this, that real faith is a response to who God is and what he's already done. It's kind of like a reply. It's kind of like your phone dinged and you got your text message. Oh, that's God's initiation. He already sent Jesus down a cross for the forgiveness of sins, John 3, 16. He already has gone on your behalf while you're still a sinner and done good for you. He's made eternal life available to you. How do I respond to that? Well, if I was to reply to the text, in spiritual words, that's me responding in faith. If you are who you say you are, God, then my response is faith, which means I'm going to submit myself to you. You're God. I'm not. I'm going to willingly lay down what my plans are and pick up your plans. I'm going to put not just my belief in you, but my trust and my hope. I've heard it said years ago, um, and I don't know if this is true for you, that every family has a weird uncle. Is that true? Is that anybody have, if, if you know who the weird uncle is in your family, lean to somebody in your family right now and say, you know who it is. It's, it's uncle so-and-so. Yeah. And if, if you don't know who it is and you're a dude, it might be you. <laughs> 
everybody's got that weird uncle in their family. Uh, sometimes it's a toss-up. You know, which weird uncle do you want to pick? You know, who do we want to talk about today? Uh, I want to share with you about my uh, weird uncle. His name was Uncle Verl. And I'm going to put a picture up here. Uh, he could have been a mass murderer. I don't know. Look at those eyes. Like, he might just take you out. You don't know. He was a unique character. I showed this picture to Billy earlier. He's like, that looks like the guy from Step Brothers. I'm like, no, that's not Mike C. Riley. But that, that is kind of what it looks like. This is um, actually my grandmother's uh, sister. Um, so you guys know how sweet my grandmother is. She's 104. This is her younger sister, Aunt Dee. She's so sweet. She's already passed. I think Verl has two. Probably a while ago. Um, and so she was super sweet, but she married this dude, and he was not, like, sweet. That was not the word you would use for him. Um, I have memories of being a child, and, like, he would come over to Grandma's house, and uh, I don't know, like, what led up to it, but he would tie me up with ropes. And the game was to try to get untied. And I don't know if he really just didn't want me to be around him, if he was trying to, like, keep me preoccupied, but, like, I... I I learned what hog tie was. Like, your hands are behind your back, your feet are up, but I could get out of it every time. I was incredible. MacGyver was my favorite. I would get out of those knots. But Uncle Verl, the reason I bring him up is because he had this thing where he would just fall asleep at the randomest times. Like, you'd be in conversation, and then next thing you know, he is passed out and catching up on, like, deep REM sleep. Like, the snoring is happening. It is there. And then, like, five minutes goes by, and he pops out of it, and he's right back in the conversation. It's like he didn't know. He checked out and came back. But you're like, you were definitely gone. You were unconscious for a few moments, you know. And so I always think about my Uncle Verl when I think about people who are heavy sleepers. I've got this new thing in my house now. Uh, Max is seven years old. He's walking in his sleep. And it's the creepiest thing ever because it's like somebody's taken over my boy's body and this thing's walking around my house and it's looking at me, but it's not him. And he's weird. He's, he's skittish and he's doing weird stuff. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? I was like, you need to go to bed. And it's like, not English. I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's doing, but he's weird. And so that he's like acting like an animal. I'm like, no, stop. You know, uh, we need to go back to bed. And so I put him in bed the other night and he was like, all right, buddy, it's all good. You're here. Do you know where you're at? And I, he doesn't know where he's at. I was like, you're at home. This is your bed. This is a safe space. Let's go to sleep. So I turn off the light. And before I close the door, I hear him start crying again. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Do I wake him up? Do I scare him? What do I do? So I just prayed for him, and he was there in the morning. So we're all good. We're all good. I want to look at a story in the Bible with you in Mark chapter 4, um, and it's interesting because it involves someone sleeping, and it's the most unexpected person of all. So if you will, take a look at this as we're talking about this idea of how do we get God's attention when we are in need. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, it says this, as evening came, right? So the whole day has already been lived, all the excitement. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, right? He's got 12 dudes following him. Hey, let's cross to the other side of the lake. Now, that sounds like no big deal, right? But, like, let's just say, for instance, that we're on the side of Smithville Lake, and you looked at me and said, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Do we have a motor? How are we going to get across? Even if I had oars and I had, like, the capability of rowing across, that's no small task. And this sea, this lake, was much, much bigger than Smithville Lake. And there are, there's 12 dudes. They're going to, like, all right, we're going to get to the other side of the lake, and it's 
going to be nighttime soon. The sun is setting. So verse 36, so they took Jesus in the boat, and they started out leaving the crowds behind, although some other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Can you put yourself on that boat? This is before they had LED lights. There's a fierce storm, which means like there's some rain coming down. And I don't know about you, but fierce storms normally include this thing called lightning and thunder. And now you put me on a body of water. And now this little lake that we're crossing has waves bigger than the boat that's crashing into it. And now it's filling with water. I can't see. All the dudes are here. I don't know about this. And I don't think they had life jackets. 38, here we go. Jesus, what was he doing? Oh, he was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. I think that's always a fun little detail. In case you wondered, he had a cushion. He's Uncle Verling it on the back of this boat. The disciples woke him. Okay, the rain didn't wake him. The lightning and the consequent thunder didn't wake him. The water slushing around the boat, that didn't wake him. The disciples woke him up shouting. I don't know if you've ever been woken up shouting, but it's not much fun. They woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Not only are they shouting, but they're accusing him of somehow doing some sort of wrong to them. And like, can you imagine being Jesus? You're just waking up. I mean, it must have been a long day. So when Jesus woke up and got the little eye boogers out of his eye, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped. It didn't like die off. Just suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then Jesus asked his disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified, as you would be too. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. If you're a light sleeper, you might wonder, how in the world could Jesus have slept through all of that? Was he faking it? Was it like when your child walks into the room and you're pretending like you're asleep and that you're not acknowledging them? Is that what Jesus was doing? Like, how is this possible? But Jesus was more than likely exhausted, right? This whole story began at evening after a full day of being around crowds of people and healing and doing the whole thing. And what we know about God is that he's fully God. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, right? There's this 100% God, 100% man. And this passage right here is actually showing us not only the depth of his humanity, man, he's exhausted, but also the extent of his divine power. He can speak to nature and it obeys. But this is the takeaway that I want for us today is that Jesus, despite his exhaustion, Jesus, despite being in the middle of a nap, Jesus responds to his disciples in their time of need. 
And for you and I, God is not too busy or too tired to hear the concerns of his disciples. So often we want God's attention, but listen, it's not like he's too busy or too tired. So I've, I've talked to some people, I'm like, well, he's got bigger fish to fry than my little problem. Doesn't he need to go work on the American government? Doesn't he need to work on our political system and the economics of our day? Yeah, he's big enough to do that and help you. He's not like one place at one time kind of God. He's not rushing around trying to meet everybody. No, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's able to handle it all. And he's not too busy or too tired to hear your need. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been in church, there is never a time when we will be so spiritual that we'll be so mature that we don't need to cry out for Jesus' help. We always will need to cry out for his help. We need him. We don't outgrow our need for him. Jesus wanted to sleep, but he was interrupted by his disciples shouting. And if you've ever read the Bible or studied Jesus, you might have noticed that his life on earth was really just a series of rapid-fire interruptions. Time after time, interruption after interruption after interruption. That was Jesus' life. Take a look at Matthew chapter 9 with me and just try to count the interruptions. So as Jesus is saying this, as he's speaking, a leader of the synagogue came up and knelt before him. There's your first interruption. If one of you came and knelt down here, that would be an interruption. That's what's happening here. And so the leader of the synagogue, he said, my daughter has just died, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. And just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Interruption. Jesus turned around. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. And when Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. I wasn't expecting that. What happened to my spiritual moment here? I'm Jesus. Hey, everybody get out. I'm going to do a miracle. (laughs) Interruption. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand and said, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. After Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. You ever had anybody follow you before? Shouting? Interruption. They, the, the blind men who are shouting, went right into the house where he was staying. And Jesus asked them, do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their eyes and said, because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anybody about this, but instead they went out and spread his fame all over the region. And when they left, oh, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. Yes, keeping track of all the interruptions here. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. But the Pharisee said he can cast out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. You ever been called the devil? Here's a little interruption. Verse 35, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. 
And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Clearly, Jesus' life was one of constant interruption. These people did not call ahead. They did not schedule an appointment with the disciples. They did not have an appointment to have their moment of healing. They just barged in to Jesus. Whatever he was doing, they didn't care. They interrupted him. It started with the interruption by a highly esteemed ruler of the synagogue. We find out in another passage that his name was Jairus. And he humbly kneels before Jesus, asks for his help. My daughter's died. He believed Jesus, with his help, like his daughter can live again. And so Jesus responds to him. He responds to the interruption, following the man to his house. But before he gets there, he's interrupted again, this time by a suffering woman. She's considered unclean due to her bleeding and doesn't want to make a scene. She just wants to touch his clothes covertly. That's all she needs. But then Jesus makes it a scene. And make sure everybody knows that what she's done uh, has caused her to have faith. Her faith has ushered in this healing. And so he continues to Jairus' house, and he raises the man's daughter to life. And Jesus makes it known through these interactions that, that faith and restoration are for everyone. See, we sometimes miss the fact that the leader of the synagogue would have been a man well-to-do, He would have been in a nicer car. He would have been in a nicer home. And here's a woman who suffered with an issue of bleeding for years of her life, probably unable to work. And other passages, it says that she spent all of her money on doctors. So we have a rich person, a poor person. We have a man. We have a woman. But, But Jesus doesn't care about all of those distinctions. There's no issue with social standing in God's eyes. He's willing to meet people right where they're at. And after he heals this man's daughter, after he heals this woman, now all of a sudden you got two blind men following Jesus around. Can you imagine? How are they following him? That's what I want to know. Like, does Jesus smell? Like, are they following him? Son of David, where are you? Like, how do they know where he's at? And not only, this is impressive, they follow him all the way into the house he was traveling to. Like, how'd they get in there? Like, did they have walking sticks? What did they do? How did they get, like, that's some perseverance. Did these guys fall down a couple times? Did they get back up? How did they do it? I don't know. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. But these men, too, are people of no social clout. Like, they're nobody that is like important in the people's eyes, but these guys were bold enough to follow Jesus into someone else's house, and Jesus too, with the interruption, heals them. And then finally, we, Jesus goes on to free a, a demon-possessed man and then be accused of being the devil himself by a Pharisee. So Jesus' response to all of these interruptions is remarkable to me. How he responded to every interruption, like, that is incredible to me. Last night was a Chiefs preseason game. I'm irritated with my children for interrupting me. Does the game matter? No. But my children are interrupting me, and my attitude towards my children is not good. Jesus 
he is never phased by the interruptions. He's never inconvenienced. He's never frustrated. Rather, Jesus welcomed these people and their interruptions. And we read in verse 36 why, and we'll put it back up here. It says that when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think all of us could grow to see other people more like Jesus. I think we all have a little room to grow there. But the emphasis in this message isn't so much that as it is for you to know that Jesus has compassion for you. Your situation, what you're going through. True, you may be confused. You may be helpless. You may need a shepherd. But Jesus wants to be your shepherd. Remember, number one, we need God. Number two, God loves to respond to faith and humility. So today, the big question is, will you humble yourself? Will you be honest about your shortcomings and your need of God? Will you admit that you cannot do it on your own? Will you acknowledge your brokenness? And will you be willing to go to God with your concerns? God is not too busy or too tired to hear the concerns of his disciples. If you've checked out, lean in. God cares for you. And he's not intimidated by the messiness of your situation. He doesn't think that your situation is unimportant. Like a good father, he is there. When you drop your ice cream as a child, and it's the end of the world. And he's there with you when you're broken with grief after bearing a loved one in adulthood. He cares for you, no matter what your situation. He cares for you. Nothing is too big or too small. And I want you to know that he is always in the boat with you, ready to respond. And maybe even challenge you. As we prepare to end today, every person walked in here with a story. I don't know your story. The person next to you might not know your story. But you've walked in here. And I'll just be honest with you. You need God. You need God in your life right now. I don't care if you've been a Christian for a long time or you say, I haven't stepped over the line of faith. You haven't stepped over the line of faith. Well, you you need to step over the line of faith so you can receive God, his Holy Spirit, and have new life. But even after we've stepped over and received this amazing gift, we have to come back to his feet and we have to worship him and we have to get his guidance. And listen, every one of us needs his guidance. There's not anyone excluded If I could have an appointment set up with you and you could sit down with God and you could talk to him face to face, what would you ask him? What would you need? What would you want? What would you inquire of him? The God of the universe. He says, I have all power. I have everything. How could I meet your need? What would you want from him? Would you want guidance for your future? I don't know what to do next. Would you want healing in your body? What would you want if you could meet with God and ask for that? Here's the thing. God wants to meet with you today. He wants to hear what it is that you need, but you have to approach him in faith and humility 
And listen, there's no guarantee that he's going to do exactly what you want, but I do know this, that he loves you. He cares about you. He cares about your situation. He's willing to meet with you. So here's the wildest question of the day. Do you want to meet with Jesus right now? See, he's not absent. He's not pre-booked at a different church. No, he's here right now. His presence is here. Whether you've been aware of it or not, he's here. Do you want to engage with him? Do you want to talk to him? Do you want to make your request known, or are you too prideful to approach God with it? Because remember, God resists the proud but draws near to the humble. I want to invite you to take a moment before we leave this space, before you have to go get your kids from downstairs, before you start thinking about what's for lunch, to ask God to meet you where you're at. You know your situation. You know your story. I don't. You have to be the one to verbalize that to him. And listen, God hears you. He's not too busy. He's not too tired. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.